Welcome to Timeless Truth with Pastor Jim Thomas, a resource of the Village Chapel in Nashville, Tennessee. For the next couple of weeks, we'll be featuring a few of our favorite previous episodes of the podcast. In October, we'll begin a new book study on the Gospel of Mark. Also, as you're considering your plans for next year, TBC will be embarking on a Journeys of Paul tour, July 7th through 16, 2024. We'll step into history and walk where the Apostle Paul journeyed as we visit Philippi, Athens, Corinth, Ephesus, and many other locations. This tour will bring the scriptures to life with meaningful worship services and Bible studies with Pastor Jim. You can learn more at thevillagechapel.com tour. Now, here's today's study. Hey folks, Pastor Jim Thomas from the Village Chapel here in Nashville, Tennessee with your daily devotional. And alongside me today is a good friend, Scott Red. He's from Reformed Theological Seminary. He's the president there in Washington, D.C. And uh, a lover of the Old Testament literature, which I too am quite fond of. And we dip into a good bit here on this podcast. So Scott, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Jim. It's great to be here. Great to have you with us. Uh, you and Jennifer, you got five daughters up there in uh, Washington, D.C. area, right? We got five daughters. I always say yes, five, yes, daughters. And All right, uh, we're, we're enjoying Christmas break. What ages are uh, are the kids? They're ages seven to 17. So we've got one who's about to head off to college and uh, wow. one baby who's still at home being doted yeah. on by her parents. There you go. <laughs> Well, um, some of you that watch the podcast will know uh, the Gettys, uh, Scott and Jennifer and Kim and I met each other uh, through the Gettys and have been friends and gotten together a couple of times. And I just uh, so grateful to you, Scott, for, for joining us here today on this uh, podcast on Fridays. We'd like to uh, take a look at, at favorite Psalms. And um, I know you have a great love for the Old Testament. I know you have a great love for uh, Hebrew poetry. Tell me why. What, what about that all inspires you? That's a great question. I, I was an English major in undergrad, and I loved literature. I, I wanted to write uh, when I graduated and uh, uh, did some work in journalism after that. And, and because of my love of writing, I also was in love with reading and uh, different kinds of writing. And I didn't know that I could put those two things together, the, the love of writing and then what later would become my my sense of call to ministry. I didn't know that I could put theology and literature together until yeah. I got down to seminary and had some great professors who just opened my eyes to how you can read the Bible, not not merely as a, as a place where you find theological teaching, but actually a place mm. where um, the, the beauty of the Lord is revealed and mm, uh, a mm. literary work that can be studied as a literary work. And so all of that kind of came together. And that's what I ended up doing when I went on to do my doctoral work later on. I ended up doing it wow. actually on, on Hebrew poetry. So what, what distinguishes wow. Hebrew poetry from other kinds of writing in the Bible? Yeah. What uh, common misconceptions do you think there are, Scott, about uh, Hebrew poetry, like the Psalms, for instance, um, when it comes to interpretation and application? Are there... Are there things we need to keep in mind when we're when we're interpreting and applying this kind of text? Yeah, there, I mean, I think there are. I mean, one one major misconception that I think it's not just something that Christians wrestle with, but uh, a lot of people do, which is this idea that poetry uh, nowadays is kind of seen as something that's a bit of a luxury, or it's kind of mm. a 
you know, it's a, it's entertainment. Maybe it's, it's, it's something that's left to high society folks to be interested in poetry who read the New Yorker or something like that. And <laughs> what people forget is that actually in human history, poetry has actually more often than not been the way that you say the most important things. As a matter of fact, our earliest mm. literature and uh, in, in human writing that we have is um, uh, is poetry. It's it's not you know it's not an essay or a story or a narrative. It's 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 verse, as they call you know. It's just this kind of regulated speech that's regulated according to some kind of meter, whether that's a you know a, a beat or the syntax of the line or something like that. Um, but you know. Poetry has been the way that humans say important things and mm. praise God that in the way that he reveals himself to us, he speaks in a way that is intelligible to us. And he is using yeah. this kind of language. He's using genre, this genre that is poetry. And if you think about it, even in the Bible, you go back into the Old Testament and when great works would happen, like the crossing of the Red Sea, everyone feels like they have to stop and sing a song about it. You know, or, or the victory against the Canaanites, they stop and they have to reflect on it. You know, in the Judges five, you know, Deborah and Barak, they they reflect on it in song. And you know, and then you have this huge um, body of literature, which is the Psalter, you know, the collection of Psalms, that delves into every different aspect of biblical teaching and belief, as well as history. And yet, it's the you know longest book in the Bible, and it's filled with poetry. You, know, you look mm. at the prophets, and when they want to say important things, most of the prophets, when they would give their speeches or their sermons, would do it in poetry. And so I think we sometimes miss the fact that poetry isn't a secondary way of writing. It's not kind of the thing you do after you're done doing the important theology. This is actually, for the biblical writers, this is the important theology. With, with, with the modern um, commercialization of music and the, the sort of, um, uh, I don't know if it's a you know, if, if if you call it a thinner version of that, we're just trying to get to a a, a lyric line that rhymes at the end of each line, you know, um, whether that's, you know, pop music or even Christian music sometimes, um, you know, and, and the, the example here in Music City that people use when they're talking about Christian music be Jesus set me free. Now I can see, you know, blah, blah, blah. And <laughs> right. What I mean, th this feels when I read this, and hear what you're saying, I almost get the image that, you know, they cross the Red Sea, everybody stops for a second, and the lights come down, and Moses sings this song, you know, and is he, are they just making that up spontaneously in the moment? Is that the, is that the impression you get, Scott? That's okay, so that's a big question, and I think what we have to say is, we, we, we don't know, at the end of the day, we don't know how okay. spontaneous these productions were. Um, I do think what, what you can see when you look at cultures, so this is kind of an anthem, you know, we're looking at things outside the Bible to try to understand things inside the Bible. When you look at cultures that are more oral uh, in terms of uh, orality and, and spoken word, you'll find use of poetry or what you could call verse uh, more regularly. And it's something that would be common and people probably could spontaneously produce more easily perhaps than you or I might, or now in Nashville, people can probably spontaneously create, you know, produce verse more easily than here in Washington, DC. Um, but you know, there's a way of, I, I liken it to, we've all had that grandparent or that friend who's really good at telling a story 
And when they tell the story, it just, you just know, it's just magic. Uh, I'm not that person. When I tell a story, it's kind of a boring story, but, but I've had friends <laughs> that when they tell stories, they just know how to tell a story. They know how to plant little hints at how it's going to end early on. They know how to do all these things. And yet, if I ask them, you know, how did you do that? I don't think they would say, oh, I've got this technique that I follow or this list of things. They just know how to do it. And yeah. I think what you see with David in the Psalter, what you see with these, with some of these instances where people are producing song, it, these are probably drawing off of manners, ways of singing in the past, um, but applying it to the, to the situation in front of them, you know, and I, and so some of them are probably composed. Some of these things probably are more spontaneous. We get this really interesting glimpse of this with Jeremiah and Baruch, because Jeremiah and Baruch, they talk about their method, which makes them really fascinating. So Baruch, of course, is the scribe of the prophet Jeremiah. And we know that they would, that Jeremiah would preach and Baruch would follow him around and write down the words. Then they'd go back home at night or later in the week or whenever, and they'd go over it together and make sure everything was okay for the book. <laughs> and if you were to burn the book, which actually happens, the king burns the book. They go back and they sit down again. And from memory, they put it all back down on paper. And then the, the author says, and they added a few more things, you know, and I, I love this because it shows you this is a very organic process through which yeah. the book was being produced and the prophecy was being produced. I, lo I love that, too. I also think there's probably something about the societal memory yeah. that is uh, they're equipped to be able to hand these stories down a little bit better and gives us a greater confidence in the kind of information that's been handed down over the years, right? They're, they're actually uh, uh, literary techniques like Psalm 119. Is that yeah. what they call, what is it, an acrostic? Is that what they call it? Yeah, an acrostic, right, exactly. And that, and that helps, got, yeah. Well, no you're, no, you're absolutely right. So that, that would help organize. You, if you're going to have a psalm as long as Psalm 119, you're going to have to organize it somehow. And it was a common, it's not the only acrostic that we have in the Psalter, but right. it's of course the main one. And, you know, you organize it according to the alphabet. And that's also kind of communicating this thing too. It, 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 uh, this idea that language can articulate God's word. And the alphabet was often used in that way, um, not only in the Psalter, but uh, even later on in, in, in the time of the New, uh, the New Testament, you know, there, there was this idea that the alphabet could you know, was was a symbol of how God's ideas and thoughts can be articulated to humans. And actually, there's kind of a whole mystic, the whole, you know, Kab, Kab, um, Kabbalistic Jewish thought comes out of that as well. This kind of mystic uh, view of, of, of um, the alphabet and letters that they have like magic in the word, in the letters and uh, that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. Um, but you're right. Uh, the poetry, poetry has this way of incorporating not just the mind, but the body into its production. And as soon as you start saying things with a beat and a rhythm and rhyme and alliteration and consonants, as soon as you start talking in a way, people even know it today. If I were to say on Christ, the solid rock, I stand, right. You would say, huh, that's not usually the way Scott talks. There's something going on there. And then as soon as I said, all other ground is shifting, shifting sand. You'd be like, okay. Oh no, there's the rhyme. Okay. He's talking in the register of verse. And I can't ever forget those two lines because they incorporate the whole of myself when I'm saying it's not just yeah. me reciting, you know, a, a list of propositions or something like that. Yeah. But the way that it gets your whole body involved in your tongue and your mouth to say these things, it, it really does. It, it just it gets the whole human involved in the process. 
Well, speaking of that, let's talk about someone, I think is the one that you said uh, you yeah. would like to, to talk about. Um, it's got that, that uh, you know, the whole walk and the stand and the sit thing. It's so physical in so many ways, so visual, even when you read it, right? Um, right. Uh, give, us, give us a few minutes of a, just kind of riff on Psalm 1 for us. Yeah, I love Psalm 1. It starts off, first, first of all, with this idea of getting your whole body involved. You know, the first line, blessed is the man, you know, this introduces this, this profile that we're going to get of the kind of person that um, the Lord calls us to be, the kind of person who reflects uh, what it really looks like to dwell on God's word and on his mm-hmm. revelation of himself and just be in love with him. And so he starts off with this phrase, Ashrei ha'ish asher. And you can even hear the sounds. There's this ashara sound there. It's this, you know, the grand alliteration that means blessed mm-hmm. is the man. Um, wow. And and it, it just kind of draws you right in to this now list of things. And he's described this person is described according to how they act and live. And it covers the whole of human activity, the walking, the sitting, and the, uh, uh, excuse me, the walking, the standing, mm-hmm. and the sitting, right? So it's not just this person avoids trouble or something like that, but when right. he's walking, he's avoiding uh, the counsel of the wicked. When he's standing, he's avoiding the road or the path of the sinners, right? Mm. When he's sitting down, he avoids uh, the scoffers. He, he, he stays away from, from the, those who would mock with their voices, which is something that the Proverbs and the Psalms are very concerned about, this idea of cynicism and mocking other people. Yeah. You know, so that's called a merism uh, mm. in poetry, mm-hmm. the idea that you, you have a, a range of activities that then include all of the activities, you know, that they're kind of bracketed off by those. So if you go from, from walking to standing to sitting, what does that mean? The whole of his life is about rather delighting in the law of the Lord. It's not just when he's uh, at the temple uh, during wow. the feast. It's not just when he's doing his family devotionals or on the podcast with mm-hmm. Jim Thomas, but yeah. it's all the time he's supposed to be delighting in the law of the Lord, you know? So, We start with that profile uh, of his behavior, and then we get this this agrarian metaphor. And all that means is that this is a metaphor that would make sense to farmers, right? Actually, we talked about Jeremiah. Jeremiah uses the same metaphor, and he kind of riffs off of it a little bit. That's right. Um, But it's this picture of a tree and how trees grow. And he's really positing this idea that You've got two ways that a tree can grow. Trees can grow because they get water from rain and they can grow because they get water from a river or something underneath, you know, uh, you know some groundwater, an aquifer or something. Yeah. And, you know, he's talking, he's drawing attention to the fact that the person who is meditating day and night, who's delighting in God's revelation of himself is like a tree who's planted by a river. And that means even when there's no rain, this is what Jeremiah makes a big deal out of this. Even when there's a drought, right? He still yeah. has water because he's getting his water from the roots. Yeah. And yet I think he's, he's making a point beyond just that. He's actually drawing attention to the different parts of the tree. You've got the part that's underground, right? The roots. Then you've got the branches, which are out in, in the sunlight. Everyone can see it. And the fruit of the tree. And he's pointing out the fact that when someone's getting their water from the, the stream, mm. right, it's, it's coming in through the heart, through the roots, through the unseen places, the unseen parts of the person. 
Mm-hmm. And the water comes in, you know, through this, this, um, you know, through this kind of inner, inner person, right? The water comes in and feeds the part that is on the outside, the part that you can see, which is the fruit. And the yeah. way that you know it's getting the water, right, is that it's bearing its fruit at the right time. It's, 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 so it's, 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 it's leaves are green. And I, I actually think this is an early Old Testament you know, metaphor that's basically teaching what we might call something like salvation by faith, right? It's mm-hmm. saying that the, the fruit, the fruit don't give you life. The tree doesn't get its life because it has green leaves. That is an expression of how it has life, right? The, yeah. the leaves yeah. and the fruit are telling you, oh, this tree has life. Yeah. In the same way with us, this, this whole profile of this man walking, you know, not walking in the counsel of the wicked or standing in the way of sinners. This isn't what gives him salvation that he's doing all the right things. But what is it? It's that he's delighting in the law of the Lord. He, yeah. he, he's meditating on God and who God is. Yeah. And that's, that's where his life comes from. It's not from that's the fruit. So beautiful. Leaves. So then that, that comparison, uh, verse four, the wicked are not so they're like the chaff, which yeah. the wind drives away. What's that? Uh, what's that image? Yeah. about? An- another, another farmyard uh, illustration. Right. You know, the, the chaff, of course, is the part of the fruit, we might say. We don't want to we don't want to unpack this metaphor too much, but it's the part of the kernel. <laughs> it's, it's the part of the uh, of the of the grain that is not of use. Right. Yeah. It's the dry husk. It's, you know, think of, uh, you know, taking the husk off of a corn uh, off of corn or something. It's the part you don't eat. OK. Yeah. And um, and the the wicked you know, are not bearing fruit that's of value and of service. Rather, they're the part that will just be blown away. They won't have lasting impact. They won't mm-hmm. have, um, they won't have a permanent root or, or benefit to those around them, but rather they, they blow away. And this is, this is the picture that you do when you're, when you're actually husking or you're taking the chaff off of the barley, what you would do is you, you take it in your hand uh, and you, you, you can move mm-hmm. it. You, you can, you could crumble it in your hand, and as the breeze is blowing, the chaff would blow away, and all you'd be left with is the actual kernel that you need. And this is something that actually comes up quite a lot: this idea of chaff, and 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 when you're taking the chaff off of chaff off of the kernel, you know how do you do this? It comes up in the Bible. This is actually the uh, this is what Gideon's doing, right? When he's yeah. when he's threshing in the wine vat. We were talking about judges before we started here. Um, you know, but you need the wind to blow the chaff away to leave you with the good stuff. But for yeah. the psalmist, the, the chaff, the chaff is of no value. The wicked are of no value. They, they're blown away in the wind. Mm. Well, I love the way it ends as well, Scott. Verse six, the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Mm-hmm. Uh, what does it mean for the Lord to know the way of the righteous? What, what do you think that's about? Well, each each one of these lines are giving us um, two different aspects of a truth. You know, some people call this parallelism in Hebrew poetry. Yeah. But if you notice when you're reading poetry, whether it's prophets or the Psalms or the Proverbs, they often will give you two sides of the coin in a way. Um, it's it's kind of like because we have two eyes on our head, we can see three dimensionally, right? Because you get a slightly different perspective and it helps That's you right, understand yeah. and see, see depth, right? And you can understand sort of the, the depth of a thing and the lines of poetry act the same way. So you often get two different sides of the same truth in these, in these kind of two line couplets. Um, and this is a good example of it. You know, we see for the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. So 
how are these talking about the same thing? And does it mean that the God doesn't know the way of the wicked or, you know, does mm. it, is he not aware of them or something like that? Mm-hmm. Um, well, whenever you run into the, the word to know in the Bible, and this isn't just in the Psalter, this is really almost everywhere in the Bible. <laughs> okay. Um, knowing is really about a kind of active knowing or what in English we would use, we would use a different word to describe it. We'd call it acknowledge. Mm. Right. Um, even when people talk about knowing in the Bible as a euphemism for like sexual in- intercourse, right? Like a husband and a wife know one another. What is yeah. that? That's that's an acknowledgement of their relationship. Um, uh, in, in Ezekiel, when the, pro- the prophet will say this is going to happen. And when this happens, the Lord says, and then you will know that I'm the Lord. It's, it's not that they didn't know before that they didn't know about Mm -hmm. god or something like that but then they will finally acknowledge because he's the one who foretold of the event right and so we see the same thing here you know the lord is acknowledging the way of the righteous and if the lord of life is acknowledging you and recognizing you as one of his right then that's the that's the way of life yes and the worst thing that can happen is that the lord doesn't acknowledge you and he's saying Mm -hmm. for the wicked those are the ones who are not acknowledged. They're not acknowledged in this covenant love, this covenant relationship that God has with the faithful. And what's if the God of life, if the Lord of life doesn't acknowledge your way, then that that that's tantamount to perishing, right? That's mm. that's that's being outside of life, being apart from life. And what does that mean? That means to perish. Wow. So it's kind of two different great... sides of of the same yeah. of the same thing, right? It's yeah. it's talking about those who have a relationship with God and those who reject that relationship. Yeah, Scott. So if there if there were books that you might recommend for the average reader, you know, people out there trying to figure out what you know what does this psalm mean? What would you recommend for them? That's that's a great question. So I, I think for really good commentaries, uh, Derek Kidner's two volume. Mm. On the Psalter is great. I actually recommend everything Derek Kidner does in Old Testament yes. literature, whether it's wisdom lit or Psalms. He's great, um, very accessible. I I really benefited from Eugene Peterson's um, uh, uh, Psalms Prayers of the Heart, uh, mm. which is a I think a very helpful and practical devotional guide. Um, yeah. He also wrote uh, Answering God the Psalms as a tool oh, as tools for prayer book. So or, great. Um, yeah. yeah. I love that one. Yeah. So he's in Peterson's Peterson's just a delight to read. Speaking of being a good writer, he's just a good writer. And you know, if you, if you want to pull up something that's really beautiful and comes out of church history, Martin Luther's preface to the Psalter, mm. he wrote a preface to the Psalter where he kind of lays out his view of the Psalter. Mm. And um, it's there that he has this, he has this line where he says that the heart, I think he says the human heart is like a, um, is like a, a, a ship that's on a stormy sea, you know, driven by winds blowing from the four corners of heaven. The book yeah. of Psalms is full of heartfelt utterances made during storms of this kind, you know, and wow. he kind of lays out how the heart gives, ex- or the Psalms rather give expression to all of these different human experiences. And that's mm-hmm. why they're so valuable in the Christian yeah. life. So yeah, I think you could probably wow. Google you know, Martin Luther preface to the Psalter, and you can probably pull that up as just an open source. Uh, Man, that's a great, those are great recommendations. Uh, Scott, I wonder if you'd lead us in a prayer as we close out this session. And uh, again, thank you so much. 
Scott Red uh, Reformed Theological Seminary up in Washington, D.C., a great place to study and uh, just appreciate you. Please, please give our greetings to Jennifer as well. But would you close us in prayer? Likewise. And thanks, Jim, for having me on. Yeah. Heavenly Father, we do lift up this conversation that it would be to your glory. We pray, Lord, as we reflect on the person who delights in you. Um, I pray, Lord, that we too would be formed and be turned into that kind of person. Give us hearts, Lord, that desire you and that are deeply rooted by streams of water that we too can bear our fruit and have green leaves when the season Mm -hmm. is right. I pray, Lord, you'd be with us, be with Jim and Kim and their ministry and bless all who are listening to this as well. We pray, Lord, in the name of Jesus. Amen. 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 Thanks, folks. Good to see you. Thanks for listening to today's study. Take a moment to leave a review and share this episode with friends and family. You can stay connected by signing up for our newsletter or follow us on social media. At the Village Chapel, we believe God's Word is unique in its source, timeless in its truth, broad in its reach, and transforming in its power. For more resources or to support our ministry, visit our website, thevillagechapel.com.